Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. Today, Israel is celebrating Yom Ma'ut, its Independence Day. Only 72 years ago, this special nation was reborn. And in honor of this day, we are going to talk about our work in Israel and even bring on two special Israeli guests. In case you didn't know, our work in Israel began nearly a century ago. In the 1920s, we began publishing a Yiddish-English monthly newspaper entitled The Shepherd of Israel. At the time, we were known as the Williamsburg Mission to the Jews. In 1921, we started sending 200 copies a year of this publication to Jerusalem, where they were received by a British believer who supported our work, Frank Boothby. Boothby operated a small storefront called the Gospel Gate Room, which he kept stocked with gospel tracts, Bibles, and our newspaper. He reported that the Jewish people of Jerusalem loved the Yiddish periodical and would come by the building to pick up new editions. Boothby faithfully continued in this service to the Jewish people until his death in 1940. He was our first staff member in the Holy Land. Over the next few decades, we would see many new staff and leaders of our work in Israel. By the late 1980s, our mission, at this point named Chosen People Ministries, was struggling financially. Despite a temporary suspension of hiring new workers, we saw the dire need for a presence in Israel as winds of change were in the air. We began serving among the thousands of Russian immigrants entering Israel, and in 1987, we called Avner Boski to serve in the land. Boski established a new Messianic congregation outside Tel Aviv, where he was joined by two other staff members named Albert and Greta, who served among the massive influx of Russian Jews who were escaping the fall of the Soviet Union. Two of those new immigrants were Michael and Natalie Zinn. Michael was an engineer who had fled the Soviet Union to make a new life in Israel. But like other Russian Jewish immigrants, the Zins did not know any Hebrew. So they enrolled in a Hebrew language class for new immigrants. And while there, they met an American couple who were also trying to learn Hebrew. They became friends. And eventually, Michael and his wife 
accepted Yeshua as their Messiah. That whole story is for another episode. But all that to say, Michael Zinn serves as the national director of our work in the Holy Land today. He stands on the shoulders of many previous servants of the Lord who served there. The lessons of our last century in Israel have shown us that we cannot stand still, but must always adapt with the times and find new methods to reach the Jewish people. This is true now more than ever because the coronavirus pandemic has brought life to a screeching halt. Over the last two months, we have had to get creative in the ways we bring the gospel of peace back to the land where Yeshua preached it. In today's episode, we are interviewing two of our staff members in Israel, Jason and Robin, about what we do in Israel, the overall challenges we face, and how the current pandemic is affecting Israel and our work there. Robin, Jason, Shalom. 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 Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Uh, have either of you ever been on a podcast before? I personally don't remember being on the podcast, uh, but I have been on the radio. Ah. And Robin, have you ever been on any podcast before? I think it's my first. <laughs> awesome. Well, this is my first time interviewing anyone on a podcast, so we're all going to figure this out together. <laughs> so... Okay, so I've been to Israel twice. Um, the food is probably my favorite part of Israel. Um, it is so delicious. I think, Robin, you actually brought me to a place in uh, Israel that had the most amazing hummus. And I promised that I would never eat hummus again until I returned to Israel because it was so good. What are some of your favorite Israeli dishes and describe what they are? Well, I don't want to be uh, repetitive here, but honestly, there is nothing like a bowl of warm, fresh hummus. It is nothing like what you get in a supermarket. And you get the bowl and pita and nothing else. And that, it's amazing. Just amazing. And sometimes they give it with a little sour lemon juice on the side. And wow, just perfect. Ugh. I'm like drooling. <laughs> Jason, what about you? I think it's a difficult question, to be honest. Uh, there's so many things about Israeli cuisine that I like. So if I have to boil it down, one of my favorite things is what we call Israeli breakfast, which is a spread of many different things. A lot of uh, spreadable cheeses that are some are salty, some are sweet, some are sour. And you get uh, an omelet kind of a thing. It's like an omelet with nothing on it, and you get to choose how you want to how you want to eat it with a with a cheese on it, with a spreadable cheese on on your fresh bread. When my wife and I were first uh, newlyweds, we used to go once a month to a little bit a little cafe around the corner, and we would order Israeli breakfast. And the bread was still warm, and it came in a basket. And the food was the they would have a a chopped. Israeli salad, cucumbers and tomatoes diced up. They would actually dice it up right on our plate. And it was just tremendous. That sounds delicious. So kind of keeping with the uh, questions about uh, your favorite things. One of my favorite places in Israel is the Sea of Galilee. Um, I remember my first time there and seeing a sunset there. And oh my, it is breathtaking. Um, just super calm, super peaceful. Uh, 
I don't think I've ever experienced nature in that way. What are some of the your favorite places in Israel? Um, I'm a huge fan of the desert. I love the Negev. Um, something about it, it's so peaceful, it's so different, and there's so much hidden life in the desert. And there's uh, one place called um, En Gedi or uh, Wadi David, and there you have hidden fresh waterfalls in the midst of just nothing. It's all dry, 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 and then suddenly you hear it and you see a bit of green and you come across a waterfall. Um, and it, it may be one of the places David wrote uh, some, some of the Psalms, so it's really special. Um, so the desert is definitely one of my favorite places. And then I'd say, um, I mean, of course, Jerusalem, but also Tel Aviv is a fantastic city. It is like if New York City and Los Angeles had a baby and got the best traits of both. So I'm a big fan of Tel Aviv. That's awesome. I forgot about En Gedi, and I can't believe I did. Uh, I've been there, and it is, oh my gosh, amazing, amazing, amazing. Jason, what about you? There are so many hidden treasures in Israel. Um, I mean, just when you mention a region, I think of En Gedi, and then I think of the caves of, of Mount Sodom, which are which are salt and uh, salt caverns. But I think if I were to point out my favorite place is probably uh, Capernaum. Because in Capernaum, you have the, the oldest known Jewish believing community in the world. And for me, I really connect with that as a Jewish believer. You go to the house of Peter's mother-in-law, where Jesus actually taught. And you have so much... Uh, evidence there of the er, and uh, of the life of the early followers of Jesus, the early believers. I I just love going there and thinking about what life was like uh, for those of us back then. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure our viewers are going to run to Israel once this is all done. <laughs> Isn't it such an amazing place to visit? I I think everyone needs to visit Israel at one point. I think honestly, Abe, you're you're you know we've been in lockdown for a few for a few weeks, and and I'm just dying to get out and go see the see some of our country. <laughs> yep, yep. I I don't know what uh what it looks like past five block radius from my house, so I'm I'm right with you. Um, so let's just jump in. Jason, you are the director of the Ramat Gan Messianic Center, and Robin, you're the director of the Greater Tel Aviv area. If you could just kind of give a background to our listeners, um, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, maybe a little quick version of your testimony, if you're able. Okay. Um, well, I, I grew up in a, a relatively secular family. And when my brother went away to college, he became a believer. And since he was about six years older than me, uh, we didn't have a good close relationship, I, I would say, uh, until until one day he came home from college and he was completely changed after he became a believer. And I was having a conversation with him and I literally heard these words in my head, Jesus is real and he's changed your brother. And at that very moment, I believed. I saw my brother had become a completely different person. For the first time in my life, I felt uh, that he loved me that he cared about me. And I knew that Jesus was real. And that's really the moment I would say that I came to faith. Um, and since then, I've been uh, serving the Lord and uh, trying to do what I can to, to, uh, to the best of my ability. That's awesome. Robin, what about you? 
I grew up in a um, modern observant home in Brooklyn, New York, going to the synagogue, going to Hebrew Education Society summer camp, um, keeping kosher at home. And in high school and college was living very much um, still keeping kosher, still believing in the God of the Bible and observing the holidays, but also kind of partying and uh, living a little bit wild. And during the time I was home from college for a visit, a friend of my mother's who was Jewish and had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, um, she started sharing with me and I said, no New Testament, I don't want to hear it. Um, so she shared the prophecies. And when she shared Isaiah 53 about the one who suffered and died for our sins, I was so sure she had slipped in New Testament because it was such a clear picture of Jesus. Um, and when she showed it to me in our family's Bible, that was it. It was the life changer, game changer. At what point did you realize that you needed to share the gospel with the Jewish people? When did that kind of experience translate over to now sharing it to others? So when I first became a believer, I came to faith only through um, prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. And as soon as I became a believer, I decided I would read the New Testament cover to cover. And as soon as I read it, I have to say, I was afraid. I thought it was going to be anti-Semitic. Um, I still wasn't sure if I was a traitor to my people for believing in Jesus. And then I read it and I found out that it's a really Jewish book written by Jewish people for Jewish people, for everyone, but for Jewish people. Um, Jesus loves us more than anyone. And the main takeaway message besides that, that I had was go like, your people don't know this and you have to go and tell them. And so I didn't even know what ministry was, but anyone I met, I just had to tell them, did you know Jesus is the Messiah? Do you feel like making that decision was very hard? Uh, kind of going back to when you made the decision to follow Jesus, uh, what, as a Jewish person, was it very hard to say, yes, he is the Messiah? It was. It was a struggle. I would say the whole maybe first year that I was a believer, I still had some internal struggles because I had heard uh, anti-Semitic things from kids who wore crosses growing up. I didn't, like, until I really understood who is Jesus and the real connection and that I haven't changed my faith, but he is the Messiah promised for the Jewish people. And it took a while to fully integrate that. Um, I still had some internal um, kind of stress or um, questions because of the way I grew up and misperceptions of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and also, you know, um, my family were amazingly a little more open-minded than some, at least most of them. Some of my family brought me to be programmers to unbrainwash me from believing in Jesus. Wow. Um, but, you know, amongst my friends, there were many friends who really wouldn't talk to me because of my faith. Um, it took a while to regain those relationships. So, yeah, I, I would say there were things that were hard about it, both internally and externally. Jason, do you did you have any similar experience to that uh, when you made that decision? Was there any internal struggle you were having? No, um, I come from a from a family of Jewish believers, so for me, it was uh, a very they were very supportive of uh, what I was going through. 
Um, and, and also I, I wasn't that, I wasn't that, uh, integrated into the Jewish community at the time, primarily because my family was already sort of kicked out of the Jewish community to a certain extent. Uh, when my father came to know the Lord also through the same passage through Isaiah 53, same as Robin. Um, and, and so for me, the struggle was actually more with antisemitism, people saying, well, you can't be, uh, Jewish and believe in Jesus, uh, those kinds of things, uh, dealing with that and and I really realized I think pretty early on that just being Jewish uh, wasn't you know uh, uh, a uh, sort of uh, y- my background of being Jewish wasn't quite enough for me to share the gospel with Jewish people I, I really didn't I didn't have the cultural background I didn't have the knowledge and so I think to a certain extent that's what sort of drove me to learn more and get more involved and uh, attend Messianic congregations and uh, be able to, to share the gospel. Uh, I think for me, sharing the gospel was something that was very natural because I had a lot of family members who didn't know the Lord, but I had some who were actively sharing the gospel with them uh, all the time. For example, I remember probably the last conversation I had with my grandfather, I really tried to share the gospel with him. And there was just so much cultural baggage. I really couldn't couldn't break through. And I realized I needed I needed to learn more in order to get through these cultural barriers. And that's one of the reasons I decided to, to go to Moody Bible Institute and study Jewish studies so that I would have the knowledge in order to share the gospel more effectively. Now, shifting things over to Israel, Robin, could you talk a little bit about our work happening there and uh, what we're doing with the Holocaust survivors and other Israelis? Yeah, um, here in Israel, we have 20 plus staff living in different cities all around. And we're involved in working with um, young adults, teenagers, Holocaust survivors, um, food distribution centers, Bible studies, congregations, online outreaches. So it's quite diverse. Um, I'm sure Jason will talk a lot more about programs when he talks about our ministry centers. Um, The Holocaust survivor ministry and elderly ministry is so important and so vibrant in this country. And so we um, have the opportunity to meet regularly, um, not just Jason and I, but our staff throughout the country um, with groups of Holocaust survivors. We um, do special events with them, music events, culture events, tours of holy places, um, building relationships, and we get to share with them what the Bible says. And it is just like an amazing and powerful ministry During this time, because of the coronavirus and the shutdown coming, a number of our staff in Jerusalem, in Haifa, in Tel Aviv, they put together food and care packs of things that people would need and brought them to the Holocaust survivors. And it was just really amazing to see some of the pictures of the warm faces that we all know in the door and the joy that that brought dropping those off. And then... um, when it became necessary that we're not allowed to walk outside anymore without a mask on in Israel, you get fined 200 shekels. Um, One of our partners in Hong Kong sent us a huge box of more than one of um, masks. And we were able to also, uh, the staff in Jerusalem went to senior homes, some Holocaust survivors and elderly and distributed masks to them to make sure they would have what they need to be able to um, go out. Um, So 
and right now a lot, of course, the ministry is on the phone and on Zoom and on calls, but we're always checking in and having conversations with people, praying with people. And um, really the ministry goes forward through uh, Zoom, through the phone, through the internet um, to the Holocaust survivors now. We also work with um, Israeli backpackers after the army, young Israelis go to travel and they don't just go anywhere, but they go in clusters to places around the world where we have staff that are in India. And when they come back, we're able to do follow up with them here. It's a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity to share the love of God with young adult Israelis. Um, so during this period uh, with phone calls, it's amazing. There's this one uh, elderly woman I know. She's in her 70s. Her name is Dalit, and she is a Jewish believer in Jesus. And so we meet, you know, she's really alone and isolated and can't get out. So we meet once a week to talk on the phone and pray together and read the Bible together. But then we meet a second time in the week together with her best friend, Sarah. And Sarah isn't a believer. She's also in her 70s. And it's been amazing. Sarah really is kind of agnostic, doesn't believe much. But during this period, she has really enjoyed when we're reading Psalms or when we're sharing a testimony um, or talking about God helping us through. And when we end the call, she always wants us to pray with her um, for things going on. So this season has been just an amazing and rich opportunity to connect with people on a deep level, to um, be there with them, even when we can't be there with them, and really get to share the gospel and God's love and be there for um, these elderly people who are home alone at this time. Fantastic. So Jason, uh, can you talk a little bit about the Ramat Gan Messianic Center? Um, and before this pandemic happened, what it was doing and what you guys are now doing virtually? Sure. Um, you know, one of the big issues that we have in sharing the gospel with in Israel is trying to overcome various barriers to the gospel. Barriers that a lot of times uh, we don't even really know uh, what they are. And so for us, we decided to try to create an atmosphere uh, where we could bring in believers and non-believers together because we realized that a lot of those barriers just fall away once non-believers have an opportunity to actually meet a believer. And then they see, well, all these misconceptions about who believers are and what we believe, they, they all just aren't, aren't true. And so a lot of our activities are designed to create opportunities for believers and non-believers to meet in such a way that we also fulfill certain needs that people may have. For example, we offer English classes and uh, Bible studies. We've had different seminars and conferences. And all of these are designed to create a place where believers and non-believers both come together. And of course, at these events, uh, people are asking, so why are you offering free English classes? And, and what's, what's the catch? Well, the catch is really we know people need English, and I'm a qualified English teacher, so might as well. And when we give them free coffee, they ask questions, so why are you doing all these things? And it opens the door for us to explain how God loves us, and he gave us the greatest gift of all, eternal life. So what's a cup of coffee or a free English class? And why not study the Bible together? And it just, because the barriers are already lowered because they've gotten to know us, people are much more open to hearing what we have to say. And in addition to those things that I mentioned, we also have women's prayer meetings. And uh, before the whole pandemic hit, 
uh, we had uh, concerts and worship nights where we would get sometimes 30 or 40 non-believers at, at these events pretty pretty regularly uh, at our at our outreach concerts. And through all of these, our goal is to create opportunities to get to know people. And then hopefully, if the Lord opens the door, to have one-on-one uh, conversations or small group uh, gatherings uh, later so we get to get to people get to know people better. A lot of times when we have uh, these concerts, we invite uh, musicians to come that aren't saved. And actually they're some of the most interested in what we have to say, because they're very open. Uh, if they're willing to come play at our, uh, our perform at our center, they're actually willing to come talk to us. And we've had a lot of amazing conversations with musicians and with their friends. So that's sort of the ministry. Now that the, now that the uh, pandemic has happened, we've taken a lot of this uh, online using Zoom. And uh, although we might have expected the, the um, what we call attendance to go down, actually attendance has gone up a lot. Uh, our Bible study, which used to have 10, 12, 13 people come, uh, we were just beginning it uh, this last fall. And now it's, we've had as many as 30 on at one time in our Bible study. Our English classes, which you know they, they shift depending on people's schedules, we could have as few as five, as many as 15. Now we've had a lot of people come. I think the most we had was 22 in one of our classes. Um, so things have really picked up. I think uh, a lot of people are looking for an opportunity to connect. And we were pretty early getting, getting our activities online here in Israel. And so people said, hey, let's do that. That's awesome. It's, it's pretty amazing uh, how quickly... We, you know, as a ministry and really in the whole world, how we have shifted to this online experience so quickly. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it, it is. I think I was surprised at who's actually connecting too. We had one uh, uh, woman I'm going to call, I'm not going to call her elderly, but she's certainly not young. And she was coming to our Bible studies and I'm not even sure if she, I didn't even know if she had a smartphone. And when we started our Bible studies online, virtually she had a lot of problems connecting. And now she's, she's, she called my wife the other day to thank her for the women's meeting that, uh, that Janice is organizing together with some of our other staff and how it really blessed her. And she felt the Holy spirit come. And this is a fairly new believer and she's, a uh, uh, you, you know, just, so in love with the Lord and she's going through some major life changes. Uh, Lord bless her. And she's really being blessed by our ministry virtually, probably even more than she was even before. Thank you, Robin and Jason sharing these amazing stories that are coming out of Israel. Um, really looking forward to hearing, you know, what the other side of this is, is really going to be like. So now shifting gears again, we know the situation with the coronavirus pandemic is changing every day uh it seems like the news is <laughs> you have to almost be glued to the television to kind of stay up to date with what's happening uh so could you just kind of either of you just give an update as far as what has been the experience over the past few months um and how things are kind of transitioning back to a or transitioning to a new normal because i don't think anything's really going to be the same um, you know, as it was. So, so what is life like now in Israel? Life in Israel now, uh, everyone is mostly working from home. And those who can't work from home, last I knew, 26% of the population were unemployed. 
And so there's a lot of concern, a lot of fear, a, a lot of frustrated parents because even if they could go to work, they, they have kids at home and they have to watch them. And so a lot of people are really frustrated with the current situation. Um, and the actual impact of the virus itself on Israel hasn't been so severe. We've had a little over 15,000 people were infected. A couple hundred have died. Uh, but compared to a day in New York City, that's, that's really good. Um, so there's a, a lot of movement in, and protests trying to get the government to open up the economy. Some of that has started uh, very recently. They started to allow businesses to go back to work and not at full capacity. I was out shopping for some things for work. And you saw a lot of, I saw a lot of stores that had uh, half their staff there or maybe a little bit less than half their staff there because they could only have uh, people who are under a certain age because uh, elderly can't come if you're over, I think it's 65 in Israel or people who had uh, small kids at home. They, can't, they just can't leave or they have to alternate with their, with their spouse, which, which one gets to go to work today. But still, things were opening up. I saw a lot more people on the streets, a lot more cars. Uh, things are changing, I think, for the better. Uh, but I still think it's a, it's a difficult situation. Still, we're still not supposed to go more than 100 meters from our house unless we're going to work. And that's only if you have an authorized business that's been allowed to open. So, for example, our ministry center isn't allowed to be open. Um, and I think a lot of people are still stuck at home. And many are trying to figure out what they're going to do in the coming weeks in order to be able to get to work or get back to work, find work, and uh, just, to, just to try to get back to the, to the normal. I think in general, though, where we are in Tel Aviv, it's been easier than a lot of places, let's say, in America. Because for us, for example, I don't have to go to the grocery store. I can do my order online. It's very, very simple, very easy. I may have to wait three weeks, but I will get my groceries. So Robin, before the pandemic, we already saw that Israelis were opening up to the gospel. How do you find that this pandemic is causing them to be more open, more so than they were before? Well, I think that um, Israelis, like people maybe everywhere, um, start to ask a lot of introspective questions about life, about meaning, about purpose. People have a lot more time. So we have a website, Isaiah53.com, and there are many times when we run a small ad, we'll get 200 orders for a book that explains Isaiah 53 uh, here in Israel. Um, in a week. Um, but then when you call to follow up, it's hard to reach people. They're busy with work. Maybe they forget why they even ordered it. But during this season, people are home. Um, and so the curiosity was there to begin with that they ordered it, but now they have the time to go a little further and maybe even a little bit concern or fear for their future, which I, I do think makes people think about purpose and meaning and God, you know, um, Many people who are atheists suddenly want prayer. So I think I think it has led to an openness. But in general, the last few years have been very unique time in Israel. And when I lived in Israel in the 90s, if I told someone I believed in Jesus and I'm Jewish, they kind of avoided me. They thought I was very odd. They didn't know how to process that. 
But today, many times when I will say that to someone, the response is, I've always wanted to meet one of you, or I have a friend who's one of you, and I have questions. So there's more an openness to understand uh, why someone might believe and to hear their story, at least be willing to hear someone's testimony and story. So with everyone home, I'm, I'm sure, you know, just like around the world, um, unemployment's a real issue. So how is unemployment impacting Israel right now? Yeah, the unemployment is the highest it's ever been, over a million people out of jobs. They say um, throughout the country, it's close to 25% of people without jobs right now. And in a tourist town like Eilat, a city that depends on tourism, they say it's nearly 100% unemployment. So that's huge, the impact that that has um, on a country, especially our size. Thank you, Robin. This is going to be a real challenge coming out of this pandemic. So if you're listening, maybe just pause and just pray for Israel right now before you continue listening. Amen. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, America is getting ready to enter into an election, but Israel is just finishing an election after a year. <laughs> so that that has been uh, an adventure for you guys. Uh, Jason, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, this unity government that was finally formed? Um, and maybe how do you think this will affect missionaries our Messianic congregations, and the overall political landscape of Israel? Well, I would say that politics runs a little bit slower in Israel than it does in America. Uh, even after an election, uh, I mean, before the, before the votes are counted, there's already uh, a, uh, a winner declared in America. In Israel, we have to certify the vote by one of the chief justices, and it takes a few days after the election before it's, it's official. And, and the same is true of our unity government. The unity government is essentially a whole bunch of contracts, legal documents signed between parties to form a coalition, because to form a, a, a government, you have to have the majority of the parliament members. So if it's 120 people, you need 61. In order to form that, you need to have agreements. And all those agreements have to agree with all the other parties. So as far as I know, I think I read today, 75 different agreements have to be signed and agreed to. So although they've agreed in principle, uh, some of those agreements require certain legislation to be passed in the parliament before, the, before they'll actually sign the agreement itself. So they've, they've agreed to the terms, but they haven't signed it until they pass certain legislation. So the unity government is not really formed yet, but they're in the process. They passed some of those required legislation, uh, what do you call them, the uh, pieces of legislature to, today, and they're going to continue that for maybe another week or so, and maybe sometime next week, maybe, we might actually... This, this sounds very complicated. I think we need a whole podcast just to explain <laughs> how that works. <laughs> so, the short end of the stick is there is not yet a unity government, but we're, we're going in the right direction. And what it means is that once you have a government, then you have the official ministers who are in charge of the different branches, like the finance and the health ministry, and all of these different uh, 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 positions will be filled with their deputies. And uh, right now, there are people in those positions in interim uh, capacity, which means that they don't have full authority. 
So they can't do everything they're supposed to do. And they can only get full authority if the parliament meets and gives them full authority. And the parliament's not going to meet and give them full authority because they don't know if they're for or against the government, if they're in the opposition or if they're not. Uh, so once the government's actually formed, things will go more smoothly. People will get their uh, business loans approved so they can survive the pandemic. Uh, certain nonprofits will get uh, aid that will help them help the, the lesser fortunate parts of society. And uh, everything will go a, a lot more smoothly than it is now. Without the government, everything is, it's like an engine. It's supposed to be running on eight cylinders. It's only running on two. And they really need those rest of those engines working. Wow. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. And first of all, I'm amazed that you could break all of that down. Uh, so kudos to you <laughs> for that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how this would affect our missionaries, our messianic congregations? What are some of the things that, you know, as a ministry, we're looking out for uh, with this political transition? Well, a unity government in of itself means it's a mixture of the left and the right. So you have uh, those who are on the right are generally not in favor of us uh, as believers in Jesus in this country. And those on the left really could care less about us, but they at least believe in our uh, ability to have uh, free speech and free expression and things like that. Most of the country is somewhere in the middle, which is good for good for us. And so a unity government is generally somewhere in the middle road, which means we're not going to have extremists who are going to try to take away our right to share the gospel on the streets. And we're not going to have extremists trying to pass legislation that prohibits, uh, let's say, believers from visiting the land of Israel. Legislation, I'm not, I'm not mentioning those randomly. Those are kinds of legislations that has been tried to be passed in the past by the, by the right-wing uh, movements. Um, and... For for us, it means that we'll have a little bit more stability and things will go pretty well. In general, we have a lot of freedom to share the gospel here and to do ministry, and we want it to stay that way. And so as long as we're staying somewhere in the middle, I think we'll be okay. And uh, so for us, I, I see this as, as a positive. Again, it, it's it's a parliamentary system that's based upon a lot of agreements. And if you break one of those agreements, you could lose your government. And so the chances of this being a, a with, with the different ideologies that are coming together to form this unity government, the chances of it being stable for a long time is actually pretty small. Unity governments don't normally last a long time. So I would say most Israelis are expecting elections another 18 months or two years or something, hopefully best case scenario. Well, thank you for that. I feel like we're doing a news podcast now. <laughs> and back to you, Robin. <laughs> well, Robin, I have a question. So we already know it's very difficult for Messianic believers to get Aliyah. Could you talk a little bit about how this unity government would impact that? Would it make it worse? Would it make it better? So... Aliyah means to come up, and it's the term we use when a Jewish person uh, moves to Israel because they're coming off to the land of Israel. And yeah, there it is complicated for Messianic Jews to make Aliyah. Um, there's even different sets of rules for Messianic Jews related to whether it's their father who's Jewish or their mother who's Jewish. Um, but oftentimes, if you're known as a Messianic Jew, um, you need to hire a lawyer 
and really make a case uh, to be able to get citizenship here today. So um, it can be quite complicated. And we don't know what the new government will mean for that. Um, it could make it more complicated, possibly not. Um, but the one thing that is must be said is that um, when someone does live here as a Messianic Jew, um, they serve in the army, they go to the schools, they work in the workplace. And while there can be uh, some difficulties overall, there's a lot of respect. Um, they're held in high regard um, as in the army in particular. And um, so, yeah, there's some difficulties in being or coming here as a Messianic Jew or being a Messianic Jewish person here. But there's also a lot more freedom than I think most people realize. Yeah, I would agree that we don't know what the government change is going to do. I would say right now it's actually very difficult for Messianic Jews to make Aliyah. Um, it, probably more difficult than it's been in a long time. And, and I really wouldn't expect uh, this government to change much in that regard. Um, it would take quite a miracle for it to get easier. Uh, but nevertheless, some believers have been able to make Aliyah by God's grace, and uh, and that's a that's a great win for all of us here. And I would I would agree everything Robin said about believers serving in the army and being involved. I think it's an important uh, consideration. There was a time when, in the army, believers were not allowed to serve in elite units. They weren't allowed to serve in intelligence units, and now they're being sought after for those positions. Uh, because they're they're very pro-Israel, they're very Zionist, they're very uh, patriotic in, in all those regards, and and they're very dedicated. They're very good soldiers, and so they've had a, a major contribution on society, and and that that's affected uh, uh, people, uh, even in just their regular day-to-day -day people. For example, I was talking with a landlord, and. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't find a place for us to to rent our Messianic center from a facility because nobody would rent to us because we're Messianic Jews. But I found this one guy, and he said, "Oh, well, I was in an elite unit, and underneath me there was a Messianic Jew, and he was one of my best soldiers. So I'm definitely going to rent to you guys." <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much, guys, for uh, for just kind of walking us through and giving us an update on what's happening in Israel. Um, just some last couple of questions. So how can we pray for your ministry specifically? Well, I think there's always a fear uh, for our staff personally. Um, when we talk about the pandemic and everything that's going on, we're not immune to it at all. We, well, a lot of us have elderly parents and uh people that pray for us, people that are good friends that may have been uh, affected. And so for us, I think praying for, for those of us who've been affected by the pandemic, I know some of my supporters have, some of the family of my supporters have. Um, I, I have family members that have had it. They've, by God's grace, recovered. Um, I think that's an important prayer request just, just to start off with. Also, um, as the economy takes a downturn, uh, usually the first thing uh, people drop are their missionaries, to be honest. And that's a big concern for, for a lot of us. And, you know, we, we pray for our supporters. We, we know they pray for us. We have pretty good relations. And uh, I think, uh, I think we'll, we'll be fine. Uh, but we really need to pray for our, all those who are supporting missions, not just our mission, but all missions, because 
uh, the last thing we need are, are missionaries who are struggling to put food on their tables and, uh, and still share the gospel with if they have these major concerns. So I think that's something to pray for. Jason, thank you for that. Uh, Robin, what can we pray for, for your ministry specifically? I would say, um, especially for the work with young adults who we've met around the world backpacking, who are now home, they hadn't started university yet or found jobs yet. Their travels got cut short. Most of them were kind of on rescue flights brought back to Israel. Um, And, you know, at that point in life where you have to make a lot of decisions, that somehow, um, even before we can get together in person, um, that God would be moving, that the seeds planted out there um, by our staff overseas, by our short-term teams, um, by things uh, I've shared or others have shared, um, that those seeds would be watered, that this would be a time they really are thinking about deep and important things, and that there would be a real move of God. You know, people are home. People are coming to, uh, as Jason mentioned, in bigger numbers, the events online. Um, but, it, 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 you know, these programs are an opportunity for people to connect and hear about God and people to meet believers. But we really need a move of God um, on people through Zoom, in their homes. Um, so just, yeah, I, I would say for the young adults, uh, especially, and for the elderly, of course, um, that they would come to know uh, Jesus and um, for the young believers that they would grow in their faith that this would be a time of really going deep and if um, also I'd say you know a lot of our staff like myself our families aren't believers so if you would pray for our families um, especially now we're quite separated from them by all of this um, so please pray that they also would come to know the Lord Robin, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for being my first guests uh, that I interview. <laughs> so this was a fun experience. Our pleasure. I hope I did good. Um, great. But um, I, I really appreciate I appreciate uh, what you do and your service to the first and foremost God um, to the Jewish people. Um, your work with Chosen People Ministries. We're all very, very grateful for what you're doing in Israel. And we'll continue to pray for you. Um, And uh, yeah, just thank you. If you would like to learn more about our work in Israel, or if you feel led to support our work there, please visit chosenpeople.com today. You will find articles, you will find videos, you will find a lot of resources about what we're doing there. And also, we can't stress enough the importance of your support. So if you feel led to give to our work in Israel, please visit chosenpeople.com. And before we sign off, we know these are challenging times for everyone. And we want you to know that we are here for you. If you have any prayer requests, please visit chosenpeople.com pray. Our prayer team is standing by ready to pray for you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. This episode of Our Hope is made thanks to Dr. Mitch Glazer, Nicole Vaga, Grace Swee, Kyron Bautista, Deirdre Blumenthal, Neil Saraski, Charlotte Machado, Robin B., Jason Rose. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out OurHoPodcast.com or ChosenPeople.com. See you next time.